Welcome to the CTO Connection Podcast. I'm Peter Bell, and every couple of weeks, I'll be sharing interviews with top engineering leaders. As a project management platform built specifically for software teams, Clubhouse provides the perfect balance of simplicity and structure. They've struck a nice balance of the simplicity of something unstructured like Trello or Asana with the organization and power of something more robust like Jira. What stands out immediately is Clubhouse's fast intuitive interface. Their current customers describe Clubhouse as snappy as well as a joy to use. Clubhouse is designed to be developer first and comes with a powerful REST API and all the integrations you'd expect. GitHub, GitLab, Slack, Sentry, the list goes on. What's especially important for a CTO audience, Clubhouse not only makes it easy for developers to focus on their work on a specific task, but it also makes it easy for team managers to zoom out to see how that work is contributing towards the bigger picture. Clubhouse has recently made all core features completely free for teams with up to 10 users. In addition, they're offering listeners of CTO Connection two months free on any paid plan with unlimited users plus access to premium features. Give it a try at clubhouse.io slash CTO. Hi there, my name's Peter Bell, and I'm speaking today with James Kenigsberg, the CTO and founding member at 2U. James, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Peter, for having me. Now, you've been at 2U for a while, according to LinkedIn, 11 and a half years now. But before that, just to go back, one of the things I always ask, I guess, is how you ended up becoming a CTO. How did you start your career in technology, and, and how did you end up as a, a CTO at 2U? I think it goes all the way probably back to when I was a kid growing up in Soviet Union. And I vividly remember probably around 1987, there was a a computer club, I guess you call it, opened up. And we could play for almost nothing for an hour. And that's when I was introduced to all the games. And then I noticed that you can pay significantly more money for something called programming. And I was like, well, if, you know, if the games are so much fun, how much fun can that programming stuff be? So I went in for a couple of classes. I immediately realized it was a lot less fun than playing computers, uh, but it had promise. But I would say that was my first interaction with an introduction into sort of programming and using technology in that way. When I arrived to the United States when I was a teen, very quickly, you know, a typical immigrant story, we had to come out of a fair amount of poverty and deal with a variety of things that get assimilated uh, within a new country, learn a language and do all that. And so my brother and I pretty early on figured out that internet and technology in general was an amazing force multiplier for us. After college, I ended up on Wall Street, worked in a couple of financial companies. One of those was Thompson Financial, before it was Reuters actually, uh, before that merger happened, where I worked on things like ILX, which at the time was uh, competition to Bloomberg Analytics and such. Then my career took me into Ogilvy Mathers. But when I found Princeton Review, I immediately realized that it was sort of converging two things I care so much about, which was education. And I'm a big believer if we can educate the world, sort of world's problems will figure themselves out, and technology. And that's when it sort of clicked for me that with the power of technology, because technology makes everything at a tremendous scale, using technology, you can actually achieve a much better education and access to that education could be created throughout the world. 
And so immediately realized the power of data science. We've learned the power of technology. We've learned that we can really help teachers do what they do best, which is teach and meet their students where they are, while we as a sort of technology stayed out of that way, but created a much more resilient access to that education at a much higher scale. And that's when I fell in love with sort of combination of technology and education. And that was probably before somebody coined the phrase of education technology. Makes sense. So at what point in time did you go from primarily writing code to more of a project and or product management role? That happened in terms of financial. I realized that writing code besides being extremely frustrating for me because it didn't work all the time. And for some reason, my mind computer should work all the time. And it felt like they were making me work harder than they were. But I realized that understanding how computers work, understanding how programming is done, gives me yet another sort of ability to elevate myself and not only influence my code, but influence larger projects, influence larger timelines, and therefore really concentrate not necessarily on getting the zeros and ones right, but understand how technology can make something a lot more efficient or see if we can waste a bunch of people's time because that's what internet is good for, right? Wasting time (laughs) and making things more efficient. In this case, we concentrate on making something more fun and more efficient like education. Makes sense. So when you were at the Princeton Review and you moved from kind of a product development manager to VP of application development, what was that transition like? Well, um, at Princeton Review, uh, I primarily worked on, uh, I started with our K through 12 system. Uh, If you remember back then, there was a No Child Left Behind Act under President uh, Bush. And uh, so a lot of schools really started paying a lot of attention to testing. And who, was, who is better to help them than the good old Princeton Review that have been helping students pass those complicated tests for years? This is when we started Homeroom.com, which was a product on the Princeton Review. And it a lot felt like our K-12 services at the time was almost like a new department, almost like a mini startup within a larger test prep business of Princeton Review. This is also when I got my hands a little bit dirty with what does it feel like to run a smaller organization a lot more nimble than things like ginormous organizations like Ogilvy and Mathers or Thompson Financial, where money is really uh, never a topic of a conversation and sort of smart investments are only done by the sheer power of sort of uh, financial ability of those organizations. And I feel like when we started the K-12 homeroom.com business within Princeton Review, we needed people like myself who can not only be a good storyteller between stakeholders and technologists because you kind of have to tell that story both ways. You have to tell the stakeholders' story of how technology is going to, how your vision and your technology can help them achieve things that they want to achieve or didn't know they could even achieve. But then tell a different story with same outcomes potentially to engineers where you have to get them excited about the work that they're about to spend considerable time working on. Uh, That's, I think, when I got promoted to VP of Application Development because I ran a fairly large portion of Homeroom.com, and it felt like having that level of elevation was appropriate for its time. 
And did you notice differences in your day-to-day moving from a, a manager role to a VP role in terms of the kinds of things you were, were focusing on? Well, uh, today when I interview a lot of folks sort of moving from uh, up on the ranks, I always ask uh, the, the, a little bit of a cliche, but a question that I think works in that case, what will you start doing? Sort of start, stop, continue. What will you start doing in this new role? What will you stop doing from your old role? And what will you continue doing from your old role to your new role? Because obviously the worst thing that can happen is people get promoted and they don't really understand how the new role is different than the old role. And so maybe maybe to, to eat my own dog food, I, I think when I moved from uh, being a lot more hands-on to being more of a manager, this was the first time when I had to start listening, I think, more than speaking. Because now I had people in my organization that I relied on for the vision that had a lot more details about the specifics, whether it's product specific or technology specific of the product, where I had to move from doing uh, to things like unblocking, where I had to become a storyteller that didn't only uh, speak to engineers and stakeholders, but had to sort of find its place under the sun at an executive table and understand what my relationship would be with different departments and whether I want this relationship to be in order for the outcomes to be the way we all as an organization believe they should sort of uh, progress. So from that perspective, what I started doing is, I would say, as cliche as it is, delegating a lot more and listening a lot more in order to delegate. What I stopped doing is being very specific on the things that I want to build and what I continue to do, which is a little sneaky, is convincing other people to speak about my ideas like they were theirs. From there, you moved to, to being part of the founding team of 2U. How did that change in terms of the, the size? What size of organization did you move from running? And then what was your original product and engineering organization kind of day one at 2U? Well, that's an interesting question. So I went from uh, working for basically being a divisional CIO for uh, the K-12 division of the Princeton Review, which was at the time a public company, to sort of moving into a startup. By the way, I had a one-year-old and a four-year-old at the time. Uh, Moving into a startup where basically for the first like four weeks, I sat by myself in a room because no one else showed up because there were three other people and they lived in different locations. And so if you're asking about size of organization, I went from like multiple buildings and HR departments and, you know, fountain soda to, to a building that was really 200 years of dust held up by 100 years of paint uh, across the street from Medicine Square Park. The benefit was it was right across the street from uh, first Shake Shack. So we were able to monitor the <laughs> size of the line and get lunch when the line wasn't as big. And then... How did it work in the early days? Were you actually writing code? Did you bring in an engineering team? Did you start with managers? But what, what did you do first to get the tech built? If you think about it, where we are not like a traditional startup is that we work with some of the oldest or maybe the oldest brands in the world. And, you know, most people, I often use this example, will know Coca-Cola is one of the older brands they know, which is, you know, 125, 130 years maybe a little more. Well, Georgetown is 125 years older, which is one of our partners than Coca-Cola. And Yale is 75 years older than America. So when you start looking at a brands that that 
that are really, really old, you realize that a startup working with such an established brand like Yale, or in our case, our first client was University of Southern California, you're really taking on a lot and you don't have a lot of room to be a startup CTO. You're working with Georgetown and USC. You have to come in secure, resilient, accessible. Because, I mean, think about what we were proposing. We walked into USC and we signed a 10-year contract. And they really trusted us that we and them can, where we can create access to education and take care of all the operations. And they can concentrate on what they do best, which is teach. But that also meant that we had to build everything really fast because the contract was signed in fall. And first cohort started in spring. At that time, my logic was to really stand on the shoulders of giants, right? So think of companies like Salesforce and AWS. They weren't huge in 2008, but it was clear to me that with the power of Salesforce, I can concentrate on what I do best, which is understanding education technology, how operations and back office should work for a company like that, while letting Salesforce take care of all the really complicated stuff. Uh, on the back end, like resilience, database management, backups, security, and things of that. Not obviously all of the security, but a good portion of it. Uh, similar things happen with the AWS. You know, to fast forward when we were going public in 2014, one of the analysts uh, bent down and uh, shushed into my ear. He said, You know, today Salesforce and AWS is sort of a no brainer, but when you did it in 2009, 2008, that was really, really brave. But as much as I appreciated that comment, honestly, to us, it just made sense. We knew that we were changing business. We knew that Salesforce and AWS were going in a similar, if not the same direction as we were, where they were offering services to companies like ourselves and others to take care of some of the stuff they do, be- they do best while letting us concentrate on sort of our bread and butter. And so... Standing on the backs of those giants like Salesforce and AWS and adapting open source projects such as Moodle, for example, really helped us put everything together before the first cohort in March. Uh, So we had full Salesforce installation. We had a full functional learning management system. So we, you know, we've, we've had quite a, quite a breadth of technology that we were able to put together in six months. And obviously six years before that, I would never be able to do that because none of those services were available. Right. And to get an idea, the scope of effort, was that like two people sitting in a room? Was it 20? Uh, So as an example, with Salesforce, I bought it while shopping for tomatoes. Next day, I signed myself up for advanced uh, Salesforce admin course uh, on Wall Street. Kind of wanted to go back to where it all started. So I went to Wall Street. I've learned uh, Salesforce. And the way I really build out the first platform is when I didn't know what to do, I would go to class at night and ask my, my coach on how to do that on Salesforce. So little by little, through a variety of sort of after-hours extracurricular activity, we built out our first Salesforce installation. But the reason it was so important to do it myself, it wasn't even for sort of fiscally responsible reasons. I also clearly understood that as easy as it was to configure something like Salesforce, we were designing a database in the end and designing it incorrectly, or designing it in ways that it didn't meet the, uh, the, sort of the, the company needs at the time, or the company to predict some of the company needs in the future was really a nucleus that would hold everything together. So I've probably spent a good 
two, three months doing my own Salesforce. Uh, then I hired, I believe, first project manager slash engineer slash, you know, with those days, you wear a lot of hats. Eventually, my team kind of looked probably four to six months into it. I had one IT person whose job description was you're responsible for everything that has electricity running through it. I had a project engineer slash product manager slash UX person slash everything else. I brought one engineer at that time and, you know, it was really four and I brought one person for Salesforce eventually and we sort of all wore all those hats. And when we couldn't wear all those hats anymore, we chose the hat we're choosing to take off or multiple hats and we would hire somebody to wear a bunch of hats as well. And then when they would run out of hats to wear hats on, they would hire someone and so on and so forth. Makes sense. Now, there's always this kind of trade-off, the build versus buy, especially with a very early stage company where you're like, is there going to be product market fit? What are the problems we really need to solve? Do you ever regret buying as much as you you bought uh, in terms of, say, building on Salesforce? Did you ever come into situations where you're like, dang it, there's just things we can't build on the platform? I might regret very small decisions to put something on a this platform or that platform. Maybe we use the tool we didn't like from Salesforce or we use the tool that we didn't like from AWS. But in the end, we are very happy with the both decisions. How we set those up, that's obviously and constantly changing. But I would say overall, they have been both flexible partners and we've been eating, we've been drinking sort of their Kool-Aid for a while and we are not bored of it yet. That makes sense. And when it does fit your needs, it's this huge accelerant because, as you said, there's this whole class of problems you just don't have to worry about. That's exactly right. And and you can't put a price on focus. I believe a lot of these software as a service and platform as a service models, they really allow you to focus. Again, I'm going to keep repeating myself on what you do best. And that focus, man, that is really, really, really hard to come by these days. So any technology or person that can help me focus better, I'll be a customer. Makes sense. To have an idea coming up to the current day, what kind of size of organization are you managing currently? Product engineering, design? I would say across globally, our tech organization is, let's say, give or take 500 people. Okay. And how do you think, I know you are going to be giving a talk at the New York CTO Summit this year at the NASDAQ. How do you think about managing and aligning an organization of that size? This is where I believe you have to rely on some of the well-known standards. And I always say the beauty of standards that there are so many of them. But we've chosen some, and actually part of my talk uh, uh, at 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 the NASDAQ CTO Summit will be about this concept of run, grow, and transform, where one of the first things we have to do is figure out what type of work is coming because the breadth of our technology to you is very wide and deep, right? Because if you think about the services we provide, whether it is our marketing technology, our admissions technology, where we run our own online application recommendation system and such, our academic product known as Atrio, which is our own proprietary learning management system that's fully fused and connected into our content and learning uh, department as well as the work that they do. As you can see, the breadth of their technology is very wide. And obviously you have, with breadth that wide, you have a lot of different stakeholders, whether it's our students, our faculty, 
our university partners, internal departments such as marketing or student success that constantly need tools so we can uh, create that level of white glove service that TU provides at a scale, right? So we have to sort of sit and first understand, just like you do your laundry and you separate your clothes in order for it to wash better, you sort of have to separate your work a little bit. And so we decided to choose a concept of run, grow, and transform. Really, we went back to the Agile Manifesto and realized that Agile Manifesto sees work as really simple, complicated, and complex. And that really means how certain you are of the outcome of this task. So maybe installing Microsoft Word on Peter Bell's machine is a task that everyone understands fairly well and very hard to misunderstand those requirements. And how we will achieve that task is also pretty simple for people to agree on. So that work would be known as simple, not because it's simple to do, but mostly because it is simple to understand and prioritize. Then you get into work that has a little less certainty of things like, what are we doing, right? So maybe take something like maybe even GDPR or some of the work you have to do there. There's many ways of getting that done, right? So we sort of see some of that work as grow work. Some of it is run still which is simple, or in the case of Agile Manifesto, known as simple, then you have complicated. Complicated work could mean, you know, making your application a lot more resilient or, or just growing it in some fashion by making the data better, by adding more data, by collecting it, by, by changing your displays, by making it a lot more accessible and easier to use. All of those things grow your technology, or in the case of Agile Manifesto, they're complex work. Is a little bit harder to understand what the outcome should look like and a little bit harder to agree on what the path we should take in getting it done. And then you get all the way up to complex work from complicated. So you have simple, complicated, and then complex. And complex work, uh, projects that kind of sound like we should redo our reporting suite. Well, there are many ways you can, like you said before, buy or lease or build or do parts of each. There's many ways of, of doing it. You can spend $10 million, you can spend a million bucks, you can spend very little money on it. So there, it's very hard to get to what exactly are we trying to achieve and a lot harder, obviously, to agree on how we're going to achieve it because we don't even fully understand what we're trying to do. That work is known as complex. Uh, we felt like run, grow, transform was a better nomenclature for us. Uh, nobody wants to work on and I'm doing huge air quotes, simple work, uh, but run work, how we run the business makes a lot of sense. And then we grow the business to grow work. And then we transform the business through our complex work. And so we adapted this concept of run, grow, transform, because the difference is not just words. As an example, you don't need a UX person for simple tasks or for run work but you probably always need a UX person for transformative work. You always have to do run work in order for you to run your business. And you have to do grow work. The only difference is when. So I have to make sure the data is resilient, but I could wait a month. Where run work usually doesn't wait. And transform work is a place where negotiations begin, where tech and product and business have to work together to understand where are we willing to invest into that J-curve of investment because any transformation 
is usually a significant investment for the company that you're hoping will hockey stick in return on that investment. But again, that is a much harder place to get to. When you look at run versus grow versus transform tasks or initiatives, how do you think about measuring and managing them differently? Well, uh, some of the things I sort of uh, started saying, if you think about run work as an example, it's a lot easier to set up for quantitative process versus qualitative process, right? So you can really organize around JIRA and tickets and hardcore process, and you have a lot more project managers involved than you have product managers involved, right? Uh, and then when you get to grow work, usually you talk about a lot of back-end projects, adding data, fixing data, getting resilience, compliance, things of that nature happens around that. And then obviously with transform work, that is a team galore usually because you need accessibility expert UX folks, you need information architects potentially. doesn't mean that they're all separate people in different roles. We do still try to wear a lot of hats. But it does require a much larger team because the investments are a lot heavier. Also, when it comes to process, Agile versus Kanban and such, you could see how Kanban is probably a better process for things like run and grow, where you get into transform and Agile begins to make a lot more sense because you are doing something that is a lot harder to understand. Um, You know, the business is moving, the ground is moving underneath your feet, and that's why some of those agile with scrum techniques really come helpful. And to dive into that a little more, especially in the transform, I think the transform spaces are often where people have a hard time building KPIs, metrics, quantitative goals, things like that. Because unless it's at a business level, we want to reduce our operating expenses by 20%. That's very clear. It's actually quite hard because transformative projects by their nature, you kind of don't know exactly where you're going to land. When you look at managing transformative projects. Do you have an example of of a project that you have run or are running now and how you you manage that in practice? Thank you for that question. Actually, something I'm excited to talk about is our AutoTAC project, where, as you know, universities uh, and us with them, we survey students pretty extensively. It is important for us to understand how satisfied students are with the program if they're learning the things that they want to learn and that they trust us and university as that educational partner uh, on their sort of learning continuum. But, you know, reading through those surveys or just collecting numbers weren't enough. So we created, using natural language processing in our data science department, we've created an auto-tagging tool that really tags each individual sentiment onto each survey. So you could, for example, we've noticed that people that were not happy with our technology. And we've learned that by looking at data. We've realized that when we switched to Zoom, for example, A, overall sentiment went up, but also people that were unhappy with our technology did not feel anymore that it was unreliable. And so we try to sort of rely on, you know, data science and such to create our own KPIs to know if we're walking in the right direction because transformative projects could be really scary. I mean, it's like a startup. You're investing a lot of money and hoping it's going to pay off in spades, right? But we also do traditional stuff. We make sure that our ears to the ground, we're constantly visiting our university partners. We're constantly working and understanding what 
is the entire ecosystem of education technology, who's doing what. Not necessarily for feature parity, but it is important to understand where the rest of the education technology uh, world is moving to. So you can, again, as we say in education, meet them where they are. And for us, combination of using and relying on technology to understand which transformative project we need to choose. And by having pretty solid process and relationship with our internal and external stakeholders. And, you know, process that involves quarterly road mapping sessions and such. We do feel like when we do make those investments into transformative projects or products, we do try to do an extra amount of discovery and design to make sure that the path we're taking is worth taking because those greenfield or transformative projects, you know, they, they're quite an undertaking. I sometimes talk about a $15 iguana. You can walk into a petland and buy a $15 iguana, but I assure you in three years, you will have like a four to six foot lizard living in your house and you will need probably 150 square feet of space for just a lizard. And so when you're taking on these greenfield transformative projects, I always tell people, think of a $15 iguana. It might be 15 bucks today, but in five to 10 years, that iguana will be eating 15 bucks per day. And so maintenance that is accumulated on transformative projects is not small. And so making sure that you both execute them well and you execute them in a direction where you meet and walk with the rest of the company and your outcomes will help the rest of the company and the mission of the company is extremely important. James, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Well, thank you, Peter. Always fun with you. As a project management platform built specifically for software teams, Clubhouse provides the perfect balance of simplicity and structure. They've struck a nice balance of the simplicity of something unstructured like Trello or Asana with the organization and power of something more robust like Jira. What stands out immediately is Clubhouse's fast intuitive interface. Their current customers describe Clubhouse as snappy as well as a joy to use. Clubhouse is designed to be developer first, and comes with a powerful REST API and all the integrations you'd expect. GitHub, GitLab, Slack, Sentry, the list goes on. What's especially important for a CTO audience, Clubhouse not only makes it easy for developers to focus on their work on a specific task, but it also makes it easy for team managers to zoom out to see how that work is contributing towards the bigger picture. Clubhouse has recently made all core features completely free for teams with up to 10 users. In addition, they're offering listeners of CTO Connection two months free on any paid plan with unlimited users plus access to premium features. Give it a try at clubhouse.io slash CTO. This episode was produced by the amazing team over at Dante32, a podcast production agency focusing on content strategy, audio production, and distribution. Check them out at dante32.com. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you. Thank you.